I just want to begin this morning as we get started, and we're trying to get warmed up here in this service, to say what a mighty God we serve. Amen? We serve a God that's mighty. We serve a God that's powerful. He's deserving of all of our worship. He's deserving of our praise. He's deserving of our adoration. And we should not forget as we go into the Thanksgiving season, as well as beyond Thanksgiving, that our God is mighty and deserving of our praise. In the last few weeks, we've been studying about prophecy about the nation of Judah, the people who lived in Jerusalem, and God's people, the Jews. And we talked about the fact that for these last several weeks, that God gave prophecy through Isaiah that would be performed by God a hundred years after that prophecy. The timing of this writing was right around 700 B.C. The timing in which this prophecy would occur would be 599 B.C. So it's amazing. And as we, we think about how God told them that they would go into captivity, that this nation, the Babylonians, would rise up. And of course, it was hard to imagine by the Jews because they were dealing with the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, as far as they were concerned, they, th- they were thinking, could there be any empire greater than the Babylonians? And yet, a hundred years later, God would raise up the Babylonians to a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And through a series of time, he would, he would just encamp around the city of Jerusalem. And eventually, there around 599 B.C., he would just knock down the walls, burn down the gates, burn down the temple, and all of that. And some would die there in the city by the sword, but many he would take away, including people like Daniel and Daniel's friends we read about in the book of Daniel. He would take them away there to Babylon to live. And amazingly, Daniel, if you study scripture, Daniel was one of those few that went to Babylon at a young age and continued to live through all of this. So Daniel actually lived through the entire, almost the entire 70 years there that they were in captivity. But the prophecy, didn't, the prophecy just didn't, did not stop at the captivity. The prophecy continued to talk about 70 years after the captivity of how God would bring his people back into Jerusalem. And if you can imagine that in your mind, 170 years of prophecy is given by God. Hard to them to imagine, but God would perform that. And he says in Isaiah 46 that he says, I will, I will perform that which I said I would do. I, whatever I said I would do, I would perform it. And so God would raise up this king by the name of Cyrus. We studied about him last week. And Cyrus was the king of Medo-Persia. He was actually a a Mede by by background, by birth, but he put together the Medo-Persian rule. And the Medo-Persian rule was raised up by Cyrus to overtake uh, overtake the Babylonians. We saw that last week there. And uh, God put on his heart because he, the, 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 as he, he heard about the fact that the Lord wrote about him in the, in the prophecy of Isaiah there. So he went to Isaiah. Study the scriptures. Josephus tells us, the historian, that he read about himself there, and God inspired his heart to realize, well, God brought about my, talked about me, talked about my name and everything 170 years before I would be born. And so God would raise him back, back up there and use him to bring uh, the people, the Jews, back over there to Jerusalem there. Now, when we say that, I tell you all that by background, my, the thought I want to start with this morning is that thought that we kind of spent some time with last time. It was mentioned seven or eight times, and it's mentioned chapter 46, if you go there, verse 9. And that is where God made the statement that I am God, there is none else. I am God, and there is none like unto me. Now, God had to repeatedly say that to his people because one of the chief reasons why he had them go into captivity was because of their sins of idolatry. Now, let me just say this this morning. <clears throat> idolatry, when idolatry occurs, idolatry is man in his heart bringing down God to our level. It is taking God... And bringing him down to our level. To our level of comprehension, our level of imagination, our level, if I can say this, fulfillment. When worship is God bringing you and I up to his level. We have to remind ourselves that God's intent 
is that we would be brought to his level. Now, thank God, Jesus came down. He was God manifested flesh. Amen. God came down through Jesus Christ manifest flesh. But God's intention in working your heart and mind is to bring you and I up to his level. That's what worship's supposed to be. Worship is not trying to bring God down to our level. God does transcend all that and meets us there. But worship is God bringing us up into his level. And so we look at idolatry here. These people brought God down to their level. And so when God repeatedly said, I am God, there's none else, he had to keep telling them that because they were bringing God down to their level there. Now, I say that today because people, as we saw God reveal this, they got weary of God. Now, you, when you get weary of God, you want God to be whatever you want him to be. You get tired of God, you get bored of God. Maybe there's some rebellion in our heart and we don't want to listen to God, so we bring God down to our level. And that's why God deals with this. In chapter 46, I'm giving you an introduction here. In chapter 46, God made a profound statement in verse 5. Would you look at that? In chapter 46, verse 5, God made this statement. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? Now, that's our starting point this morning. Because as we take the thought there is, that there is no other God, there's none like me, there's none else. We see three things about God in our passage of study this morning. In chapters 46, 47, 48. In chapters 46, 47, 48 of Isaiah, God wants us to see that there's none like him. That there's none else. That he is God and God alone. And if we go into Thanksgiving, we must be convinced in our heart that he is God and he's God alone. That there's only one God. There's only one God we worship. There's only one God we adore. There's only one God of the Bible. There's only one God who answers prayer. There's only one God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sin. There's only one God who's coming again. There's only one God establishing a kingdom that will reign for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be let loose. And then Satan will be placed in that lake of fire. And then at that time, at that time, God will bring forth the great white throne judgment. And after the great white throne judgment, there'll be a new heaven and new earth. I mean, that's something to shout about. Amen this morning. And in these three chapters, I'm going to try to synthesize for you that there's none else like God. Number one, there's none else like God who's reliable. God who's reliable. Now, as we look at this chapter, chapter 46, God brings them back to the idolatries of Judah and specifically the gods of Babylon. Notice in chapters 46, verse 1. He speaks about two of the major deities that were worshipped by the Babylonians and that had been incorporated into Jewish worship as well there too. And if you can imagine this, the Jews would keep the feasts and the ceremonies and the offerings that they did daily, but privately at home and in their garden groves and places like that, they would worship these gods. Now the god Baal was a Babylonian deity. Now Baal was basically the same as Baal. There was all the, all the different ethnic groups at that time. They worshipped Baal or Baal. And Baal, if you would, was the god of, of, uh, of the rain and god of the thunder and god of the storms and god of the crops. And that's what Baal was. And so the chief deity that they worshipped was Baal, was Baal. Nebo was considered the son of Baal. And Nebo, if you would, was considered the god of learning. And so these two chief deities were the deities that the Babylonians as well as the Jews worshipped. Now God, notice here in verses 1, 2, 6, and 7, is giving us some insight about these, these deities that were being worshipped. And what he wants us to understand is the inefficiency, the, the inadequacy, the incapability, the fallibility, the weaknesses of these gods. He said, Baal boweth down... Nebo stoopeth, 
Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaded. They are burdened to every beast. What did God starts off here by, by bringing them back full circle about these idols, by telling them, look, at the gods that the Babylonians and that the Jews have been worshiping were gods that had to be carried and borne on beasts. I mean, donkeys and oxen would carry these idols. And he said, it, it, he describes it to this point that these, that these, even the, the beasts of burden felt uh, it was a burden to them and they were weary and tired of carrying these gods. He goes on a little bit further on and he says here, uh, he says that these gods in verse 2 could not deliver them. These gods would lead them, into, would, re, would result in their captivity. And then in verse 7, he says something even more remarkable. Do you notice verse 7? He says, they bear him upon the shoulder. He's talking about Bel and Nebo. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him. They set him in his place. And he's standing. He says, now, he says, I want you to think with me for just a minute. I am God who's creator God. I am God who's commander God. I'm God who's in control. I'm God who's made everything. I'm God who made you. I'm God who made, gave you purpose. I'm God who gave you the sun and the stars and all of that. I'm God who gave you your crops. And I'm God who gave you your agriculture. And I'm God of the covenant promise. He says, look at these gods that you have. You have to carry these gods on your shoulder. You put these gods on these beasts of burden. And even to these beasts of burden, they are heavy to them. They're a burden to them. And then he said in verse 7, he says, they, these gods are so incapable. They are so weak. You have to prop them up and put them in a corner somewhere. And as you put them in the corner somewhere, they stand there, but they're inanimate. They cannot move. They cannot express themselves. They have no feelings. They cannot speak. They cannot see. They cannot turn. You have to manipulate and move these gods everywhere they are. That's what idolatry is, is having a god that you can manipulate to do whatever you want it to do. But he said even worse than that. He said, from his place he shall not remove Yea, one shall cry in him. In other words, he's saying, you cry to these gods and you pray to them. Yet, and then he says this, yet can he not answer nor save him out of all his trouble. He's also the God you worship. That's the God you pray to. You call upon them and they cannot answer. You know, that reminds us of a story there that we find in 1 Kings chapter 18 about how the prophet Elijah had a confrontation with 850 prophets of Baal. Elijah was dependent upon God who took care of him. He fed him by the brook, uh, by, a, by, a, by a drying, withering brook. And then he led him to a, wid uh, to a widow woman who took care of him. And here are these, these, uh, these 850 prophets who were on the payroll of a wicked queen by the name of Jezebel. And they, they dined at her table. The Bible says that they ate at Jezebel's table. These men were very well cared for because they helped, they helped pro uh, propagate her, her theology of Baal. And so... The time had come, God said, Elijah, I want you to go meet these men on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, if you know anything about the, 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 the Middle Eastern landscape, Mount Carmel was right at the ocean side. It overlooked all of the ocean, so you could see all the Mediterranean Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, not the ocean there. And he says, I want you to have a confrontation with them up there. And so Elijah met them, one man against 850. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't scared. God took three years to get this man of God prepared and ready for such a great confrontation. And you have to remember that, that all of... Elijah's peers were in hiding, they were in caves, and some had already been put to death by, by Jezebel. And so for him to stand forward like that, that was a great act of boldness and courage, and that it only could happen because God was enabling him. And he gave a challenge to, to the people of God that were up on that mountain. He said, how long halt you between two opinions? He said, if God be God, let him be God. So let's do this. He said, let's have a test. 
Let's see between Baal and the God, Jehovah God. Let's see which God answers by fire. And so he gave them a challenge. He says, you set up your altar. I'll let you go first. And I'll set up my altar after you. And I'll go last. But let's, he said, let's see which God answers by fire. Well, these arrogant, conceited 850 prophets of Baal, they, they, they built this altar of wood and stone. And they cut up this bullock. They cut it in pieces. They put it on top of that altar there. And they started to go through their gyrations. You read about this in 1 Kings 18. They started crying. And they, started, they just started crying out loud and praying. And the Bible says from very early in the morning to, to, the, to noontime. From very early in the morning, maybe about 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning to about lunchtime noon. They kept crying out, but their God did not answer. And so Elijah wanted to play with them a little bit. So he started messing with their mind and started mocking their God Baal. He says, hey, you better cry a little bit louder. You better do a little bit more because maybe your God took a walk down the park or maybe your, your God is sleeping or he's doing something else there. You better do a little bit more. And so, of course, they're, getting, they're feeling a little bit embarrassed because there's 850 of them doing their stuff there. And all these people of Israel watching, they're thinking, hey, is this God going to answer by fire? And so now they're getting really desperate. And so now they're taking knives and lancets and they're cutting themselves. And the Bible describes it this way. They're cutting themselves to the blood gushed out. I mean, literally it's pouring out of them. I mean, I imagine they pierced themselves and they cut themselves and did all these things. So the blood is gushing out of them on top of the altar. They're even jumping on top of the altar. I mean, all this, if you study this, is a forerunner of the charismatic movement just going crazy and having all of this, uh, these gyrations and, and emotionalism that's going on, on on that altar. And finally, they, they had enough. They were exasperated. It's now evening time. For perhaps maybe 12 hours, they've been trying to do their thing to get fire to come down from heaven through their God Baal, but they cried to him and he did not answer. Well, now it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah went, he didn't go to their altar. He rebuilt an altar that the Jews used to worship on there on Mount Carmel. But that altar had been in disrepair. That altar had broken apart. It had been neglected. And so he rebuilt this altar and he put the stones together and the, and the wood together there. And he put the, he put the bullock, he cut his bullock up and put it on there. But to make things even more complicated for a situation, he took buckets of water. And you have to remember, there was a famine in the land and there had been no rain for three and a half years. And so we're not really sure where they got this precious water from. We don't know if it was ocean water that they got whatever it doesn't matter but they took these three barrels of water and several barrels of water and they poured it on the sacrifice till it was drenched and was so drenched that that uh, humanly speaking there's no way that 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 uh, sacrifice or the wood or anything there could catch on fire and it was so much water that they they dug a trench around it and the water flowed over and flowed into that trench so this whole thing is completely hydrated it's completely just drenched with water and Isaiah gets down his knees and he prays one of the most powerful prayers in all the Bible. You ought to study that in 1 Kings 18. It's one of the most powerful prayers in all the Bible. And it's one of the shortest prayers in all the Bible. And he said, God, show that you're true and show that you're God and show that you're mighty. And he said, let the fire came down, come down. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 18 that God answered the prayer of Elijah and the fire did come down and set it on fire. And the people said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. By the way, he's still God. Amen. He's still God. And so the fire came down and, and, and covered all that, and God proved in substantially that he was God. Now, I say all that to say this. Go back to verse 7 here. God was saying, okay, your God is so good. If Bel is so good and Ebel is so good, how come he doesn't answer your prayers? If he's so great, how come you have to carry him on your shoulders? If he's so great, why do you have to prop him up? And he has to, you have to determine where he stands. He says, now go back to verse 5. He says, to whom then will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? And God says, now let me tell you about me. I've told you about your gods. I've told you about your failure. Let me tell you about me. 
Let me tell you about what I've been doing for you. Let me tell you about the God who's been with you. And notice verses 3 and 4, if you would. He says, hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Notice this, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, even to your hoar or your gray hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. Now, brother, brother, sister in Christ, that's shouting ground because you know what God's saying here? God is saying this, listen, your God you have to carry, but I'm the God who carries you. Your God you have to prop up, but I'm the God who's everywhere at all times and any time. He says, your God can't speak to you, but I'm speaking to you right now. He says, listen, I am your God from the moment you were conceived in the womb through your birth all the way up to your old age until you get some gray hair. Some of you need some gray hair this morning. Amen. He says all the way through your gray hair. He says, I am God who carries you and bears you and sustains you. Hey, brother and sister in Christ and friend here today, if you're not saved, I have some good news for you. We have a God who loves you so much and we have a God who's so faithful and we have a God who's so merciful. We have a God so great. From the moment you were conceived in the womb, he knows your name. He knows you who you are. He knows the number of fingers that are going to be on your hand. He knows your heartbeat. He's got a plan he's laid out for you. He said from the moment in your womb, he said to your birth, all the way to your old age, he said, listen, I am the God who carries you and bears you on my shoulders. He says, I am with you even through your gray hairs. Praise God. I'll carry you. Notice verse 4. He says, I have made... I will bear, I will carry and deliver you. He's the God who bears us up in our sorrows. Proverbs eighteen fourteen. The spirit of a man sustaineth his infirmity. Listen to this. But a wounded spirit, who shall bear? When you've got a wounded spirit, you've got a hole in your soul. You're oozing with pain. You're bleeding with sorrow. No one can describe. That's what he says. The spirit of a man shall sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. I mean, you, there's nobody you feel that can bear. But I'm going to tell you this morning, you might have a wounded spirit, and you may feel like you've got sorrow, but the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 4, that he carries our griefs and he carries our sorrows. Surely he's born our griefs and he carries our sorrows. I just say this morning, as we look at God, he's a God who carries us and bears our sorrows. He carries us, he carries us and bears us in our times of burden and our times of overcome. But notice this morning, he's a God who bears us in our sins. Notice in the scripture, notice chapter 46, verse 8, he speaks about the fact that he calls us transgressors. Oh, ye transgressors. In Isaiah 48, 8, he makes this mention. He says, we are transgressors from the womb. He reminds us that even though he bears us from the womb, the moment of conception, and, uh, and through our birth all the way to our gray hairs in the old age, here's what he says here. You're still a sinner. You're still born with a sin nature. And you're still going to have battle with sin. You're going to deal with sin. And you're going to have trouble with sin. But he's, he's the God who bears us in our sin. In 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bare our sins on the cross for you and I. The Bible says, Who bear his whose own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. I just want to say this morning, we have a God. There's none else like God who's reliable. There's none else like God who bears us up. There's none other like God who can carry us on his shoulders and sustains us to our infirmities and carries us to our times of difficulty and helps us to our needs. Listen to what David said about that in Psalms 37, 25. David said, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor seed begging bread. Hey, are you at a place in life 
where a midlife crisis has hit you and you're not sure where, what life is all about? Are you a person and you're going, heading towards the fourth quarter of life and you're kind of wondering what life's all about and how many more years you've got left and you're worrying to death of what's going to happen with your years and life? Are you someone young that you're experiencing failure? I want to tell you this morning, we have a God who's reliable who says, I will bear you up on my shoulders. I will carry you even throughout your old age. He is there for you. Listen, God was not someone that you have to prop up. He holds you up. He incorporates you into his life and tells you that I am there for you no matter what it may be. Psalm 73, verses 23, 24, David said, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me up by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Now you can bank on that as you're in, no matter what stage of life you're in. Number one, we have a God who's reliable. But notice, secondly, he's a, there's none else like God who is righteous. Look at chapter 40, 47, please. As we get to chapter 47, notice what God says at the, actually the end of chapter 46. The end of chapter 46, verse 12, he says, Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted. Now, stout-hearted means you are mighty and strong. He's talking about those who haven't bought into the fact and submitted to the fact that God is who he is. They're stubborn, very proud. He says, Hearken to me, ye stout-hearted. Notice this, that are far from righteousness. Now, on one end, he's talking about the Babylonians because as we get into chapter 47, this is the intro to chapter 47. Chapter 47 is dealing with God's overthrow of Babylon. Now, he spent a lot of time in the first, 46, uh, first chapters 40 to 46 talking about, about, about the Babylonian captivity and, uh, the, and all of that and then Cyrus coming about. Now, in chapter 47, the question, he answers the question, what about Babylon? And this coincides with Jeremiah chapter 50 because Jeremiah chapter 50 also tells us about, the capti- about what God does to Babylon here. He said in verse 13, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Now, we can bank on the fact that as God's children, that he is a God who's reliable. But we have to understand something. Whether we're God's children or if we're not God's children, we have to understand this. He is a God who's righteous, and that doesn't change. God was not born righteous. He's always been righteous. From everlasting to everlasting, God is always righteous. Now, we use the word righteous. There's none righteous as far as humans are concerned. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's only one who's righteous, and that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by righteous? Well, by righteous, we mean He's all truth. He's all sacred. He's all holy. He's all just. He has no sin. He describes our relationship to him in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 46. We are far from righteousness. God is righteousness in his glory. Listen, Jesus Christ is called the Lord my righteousness. The Hebrew name for Jesus is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. So we consider righteousness this morning. We must look at the fact God is righteous. Now, God being righteous, he, he reveals himself in chapter 47, 48 as being righteous with the pagan. Now, in those days... You're either the people of God or you're pagan. And pagan meant that you were an unbeliever who worshipped another god. Because that's what everybody during that time did. They worshipped other gods. A pagan might be today synonymous with an unbeliever. Babylon, in chapter 47, we see some things given here about the fall of Babylon. Babylon was filled with arrogance and pride. I'm going to give you a recap real quickly. If you notice, go down very quickly down to verse, uh, let's see here, verse um, 6 and 7, excuse me, verses 5 and 7. Babylon describes herself as a lady forever. 
She's called a virgin daughter in verse 1. And what that means is this, is that she pictured herself as someone who would never be conquered, who would never require a suitor, someone that was very strong. And Babylon had gotten to the place where they were so strong at one point. They said, we will never be conquered. We will never be overcome. That's what they were saying there. And God heard their words there on this. And so they said, we will be a lady forever. So they were very proud about where they were at. The Bible tells us in, um, if you go to verses 8 and 9, that they indulge in carnal pleasures. He says, now, therefore, hear now this in verse 8, thou that are given to pleasure and dwellest carelessly. They became very careless in ways. We see that in uh, Belshazzar. Belshazzar was very careless when he had that great feast in Daniel chapter 5. We've spoken about that the last few weeks here. They would say things in their heart, I, I am, and there's none else besides me. Uh, they described themselves as being, uh, being very wicked. God described them as being very wicked. He said in verse 10, they put their trust in their wickedness. He said in verse 10, their wisdom and their knowledge has perverted them. And they kept saying in their heart, I am, and there's none else beside me. Now, we think about that twice in this chapter. They were making a statement, I am, and there's none beside me. It's really like an affront against God because God was saying, no, uh, there's none else. There's none besides me. But they said, no, there's none like us. We, we are equivalent to God. We're just like God. And our gods, we've, we've brought our gods into your nation, and your nation is worshiping us. So they were very filled with themselves. On top of that, in spite of the godly influence that Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we read about in Daniel, they had in, 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 there in Babylon with their godly influence, that it did, their godly influence just, it just didn't, didn't touch their lives because they rejected it. And verse 13 tells us that they, um, verses 12 and 13, that they were given pretty much to uh, following their astrologers, their stargazers, the monthly prognosticators. I mean, they were basically following witchcraft and astrology and things of that nature, very similar to our world right now, and fortune tellers and things, of that na- things like that, and, and sorcery and things of that nature. I mean, that's basically what they were following there. So if you read, read about Babylon, I mean, Babylon was a very pagan nation. I mean, they believed in themselves. They trusted in their own wickedness. They went very far from God. They were given a drunken stupor and a number of things like that. And um, basically, as we read about them, they were a very, very proud, wicked nation. They were very proud and conceited, arrogant in their way. Well, God had to deal with them because as they were laughing at God, they did not read Psalms chapter 2 where the, where the Almighty God looks down from heaven and laughs at them. The Bible says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain thing? And they laugh at God, but really it's God having the last laugh against them. And so God pronounces in chapter 47 here through the prophet Isaiah how he would deal with them in righteousness, how God would deal with these people in righteousness. Notice in verse 1, he describes them as sitting in the dust. He describes them sitting on the ground and there, there's no throne. And he describes them back about the fact that, they, that, that their throne would be, would be gone. God would take away their throne. That sitting in the dust is a description of a great humility and great embarrassment and being stripped of things. He describes them as a slave. He says in verse 2, they'll be like, a, they'll be like someone grinding at the mill there. And uh, he says, you know, anytime you read about grinding there, it's a description of a slave. We read about that about Samson there in the book of Judges there. He describes them as a, as a, as a slave woman who's half naked, where she's just basically stripped bare of her, her clothing, and they're standing there shameful and embarrassed because of her situation. And so as we describe it, God says, you know, I'm going to bring you down to naught. I'm going to bring you down to nothing. They, they got so proud, if you go back to verse 8, they were so proud, they said this, we will never be a widow and we'll never be an orphan. Now, a widow and an orphan in the Bible, when you read about this, describes perhaps the, uh, the most utmost uh, or perhaps the depths of human sorrow, of being a widow and of being an orphan. It's the depths of sorrow, the depths of, uh, of great darkness in your life, and just 
uh, just, uh, just being in a very difficult place in life. And they were boastfully saying to where God could hear them say this. They were speaking out loud. They said, you know, we will never be a widow. We'll never be an orphan. And in verse 9, God said this. But he says, two things shall come to thee in a moment in one day. He says, the loss of children and widowhood. He says, in a moment. In a day, he says, I'm going to bring your judgment upon you. And that's what happened. What we read there in verse 9 is exactly what God did to them in Daniel chapter 5 when, the, when Cyrus and the Persians came and um, basically defeated them. They dried up the river Euphrates. They diverted the waters away. They came under the city. The gates were wide open. They came in. He says, you will experience widowhood and become an orphan in one day because of, because of your pride. Now, what's God saying to them? He's telling them that he would judge them in righteousness. Now, we have to understand something. God must judge sin. And sin has a consequence. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. We must understand that sin always has a consequence. God must judge sin because he's a righteous God and a just God. And he goes on a little bit further and he says in verse 14 about them, he says, behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm, nor fire to sit before it. Now that description there was to perhaps, perhaps capsulize everything. He said they'll be like stubble in the fire. He said the fire will burn them. There will be no one to deliver them from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. You know, that description there is saying, you're going to burn up. You're going you're gonna to be completely left out. I'm going to take you out of this place because you've not turned your sight towards me. Well, you say, Pastor Fong, did God reach him with the gospel? God did reach him with the gospel. It was, it was through the prophet Daniel and through the prophets of that day and through the writings of Scripture. In fact... We read over Daniel chapter 4 that God had to humble their first king, Nebuchadnezzar. And as he humbled him after seven years of walking around like, a, like an animal, read about it in Daniel chapter 4, that we read later on that Nebuchadnezzar turned his eyes to God and he called upon the Lord. And I believe as you read Daniel chapter 4, I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved in the latter years of life. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar made a profession of faith. He repented of his sins and turned towards God. But his influence there was not, was not great enough to, to influence his nation because they were still filled with this pride with all the things we read about in chapter chapter 47. And so God describes their ending here will be like, will be like the fire that none can deliver them from the power of the flame. Let me say this this morning. I know it's Thanksgiving, but that reminds me this morning about the, about, about hellfire judgment, that hellfire judgment, that none can deliver a sinner who's gone the extent of his life and has not called upon Jesus Christ to be a savior, who's refused to call upon the name of the Lord to save him. Nothing can keep that person when they die and leave this life. They will go into eternity and not spend eternity with heaven in heaven with God. They'll spend all of eternity in hell and they will be in the power of the flame and none shall deliver them. And may I say this morning, if you're not truly saved and born again, hell is the worst place for a person to go. Hell is the worst place for a person to be because that's where they'll spend all of eternity. And from hell, they'll be cast into a lake of fire where they'll burn forever and ever. And God describes this judgment upon Babylon as giving us a foreshadowing of the judgment of hell that there'll be none to deliver them from the power of the flame. Now I say that this morning, say, God in righteousness must deal with the pagan. God in righteousness has to every sinner that every sinner has a payday someday. And every sinner has a judgment day in which they must meet their creator and give acknowledgement. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you call him his savior or did you reject him? Now thank God for us here today. If you know Jesus Christ as savior, you ought to thank God for your salvation this morning. Amen? You ought to thank God for the shed blood of Jesus Christ that he became your sin substitute and your sin sacrifice to die for your sins. And you 
want to thank God today beyond anything else that God is your Redeemer, that He purchased you with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You ought to be thankful today that it's not hell that you're going, but heaven that you're going to, that your inheritance is in heaven, that Jesus is your Savior, and that you're a son of God today. Now, God is righteous to the pagan, but very quickly, notice chapter 48, God is righteous to His people. Notice chapter 48. chapter 48, he brings us back to his people, Judah. In verse 10, notice this. He speaks about God's chastening. God dealing with his people in righteousness. God's, God, how God disciplines his children. And in verse 10, he uses the metaphor of the refining process. Refining by fire. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I've chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. You underline that phrase, the furnace of affliction. He's taken the thought of metallurgy to us. Of a goldsmith and a silversmith. He's taken us into the actual business of the silversmith inside of his shop. These people we read about in chapter 46 would bring bags of gold and would ask the silversmith or the goldsmith, please melt this down into an idol of this description. And in this metaphor he's using, it was very, very common, so everybody understood that. A person would bring their gold and silver, and before they would do anything with it, they wanted the purest gold and purest silver. And so what they would do is they would take a, a holder, which we would call a, a crucible, and they would take this solid metal of gold or silver and place it inside this crucible. The furnace would be heated up. Gold melts at almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, about 1,950 degrees Fahrenheit. Silver melts at 1,743 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, that's very hot. When they get it heated up to a certain level, and only the silversmith and goldsmith knew how hot it had to be and how to get it to that level, I mean, it's, it's glowing hot. It's extremely hot. I mean, if the silversmith, goldsmith is not very careful, he has, to use, he has to use these prongs, extended prongs, to pick up this crucible that contains this, this solid metal to place it inside of, that, inside of that furnace mouth because if he gets too close to it, that the flames would overpower him. And so the image in, my, in their mind is this crucible with this, this solid metal of silver or gold and the furnace is heated up at melting point. And as he places that crucible inside there with this, let's just say it's the gold, and it's heated up about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, he leaves it in there, keeps the fire burning as hot as 2,000 degrees, if not hotter, and the metal becomes liquid because it melts at the intensity of that heat. The heat is so intense, it alters, listen to this, it alters the composition of that metal. Amen? It changes it from a metal to a liquid. It alters it. The intensity of that heat. Now, if that was human flesh, you would burn it away. You'd be burned and roasted. There'd be nothing left. But it alters the composition, the physical makeup of this, of this metal to where it becomes liquid. And the silversmith or goldsmith, as he's watching this, is watching this metal become liquid. And he knows he's watching because at the right time, he's going to pull it out. Now, there's a purpose why he melts it. Because he's going to start to see this residue start to appear on the top of this liquid. And as he sees this residue, he continues to let it burn in there. And it's very liquid metal. 
metal, very hot, very liquid metal. He sees this residue that's forming, northern residue's coming up. Those same prongs, he reaches right inside the mouth of that furnace. He, he places those prongs right on that crucible. He pulls that crucible out. He pulls it out, and as he does so, here's this boiling liquid, this, this solid metal, which has been altered in composition, that is now a liquid metal, if you would, and all of these, these, this, this, uh, these impurities that have come to the top. Now, the word for impurities that we find that's used is the word dross. And so, what he's doing now, he's burned it, he's not burned it, he's melted it so that all the impurities that were embedded inside of that metal can come to the surface so that he can easily, with a, with a spoon or some other device, he can scoop it off so basically all the dross on impurities are removed. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's how God works in our life. God places you and I into the furnace of affliction. There, God puts trials in our life and difficulties in our life where we feel the fires and the flame and the intensity of the heat of, those, of that flame burning on us. And it's, so God's purpose in that is not to hurt us. And God's purpose in that is not to punish us. But God's purpose in that is to purify us. God's purpose in it is to draw the impurities that are embedded so deep within that we don't even know those impurities are there. He wants that draw us to come to the surface so that through that furnace affliction we come out purer, we come out cleaner, we come out holy, we come out, we come out as hundreds percent gold and hundred percent silver in the eyes of our Savior Jesus Christ. Job twenty three ten says this, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And the idea of gold there is pure gold. Proverbs twenty five four says, Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. I think Charles Spurgeon put it this way Fiery trials make golden Christians. Fiery trials make golden Christians. You see, God loves us. And God understands that we battle with sin. And God understands that we are not at our best unless He puts us through that furnace of affliction. And that heat is very intense. And it alters our composition. And it alters our thinking. And it alters our mind. It changes our life. It takes it from a hardened heart to a softened heart. To be someone who's, who feels like, we, I don't need to address the sin in my life. To where we become sensitive to the fact we better address the sin in our life. And God brings those sins, those impurities that draw us to the surface that we might see it. And he does so so that we can yield to the Lord. And as being the great goldsmith and silversmith in our life. That he's able to scoop those impurities out of our life as we claim 1 John 1, 9. And confess our sins to him. Knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, there's none else like God who in his righteousness deals with the pagan and deals with his people. We see a God who's reliable. We see a God who's righteous, but very quickly, we need to close. Would you see one last thing? Go to chapter 48 and notice verse, uh, verse 17, 18. There's none else like God who's reliable. Amen. There's none else like God who's righteous. Amen. But as I close this morning, would you notice there's none else like God who gives rest? Rest. In chapter 48, verses 14 to 22, which we read, he tells us, or tells his people, especially verse 20, they're going to go forth from Babylon. When Cyrus says, go, go. He says, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. He says, now I'm going to deal with them. They're not going to bother you. He said in verse 14, the Lord has loved him. He's talking about his people. He will do his pleasure on Babylon. His arms will be on the Chaldeans. He's talking about what he said in chapter 47 about the judgment of God upon the Babylonians. 
And he said, we said, well, Pastor, why did he judge the Babylonians? Because they went way beyond what they should have, because they did some very bad things to the Jews. God wants his people to go forward. God wants you to go forward. God wants his people to know that you might be going through some hard times, but hard times is not the end of it. There's a future. There's a vision. There's a path. There's light at the end of the tunnel, God says. So he gave them verse 47, uh, verse 17. He gives us verse 17. He says, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now he had to assert who he was in their life. Number one, he's the one who saved them, but he's the one who's still holy because God's purposes that he accomplishes in our life are always holy. Amen. They're always holy because God wants to produce holiness in us. And so he said in verse 17, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Notice this, I am the Lord thy God which teacheth thee. Now God puts trials in our life, and God puts us in difficult situations, and God puts us in places that He could teach us. Because you know what? The reason why we get that place is because we get to, we get to the place where we're unteachable, and we're not allowing the Lord to teach us. And I don't know if you're there, but I know it's just in my life. When I get to the place when I'm not teachable, God has to slap me upside the head a few times, and He has to get my attention to realize... I'm not being very teachable. And so God has to put a fire in your life and an affliction in your life and a trial in your life and something difficult in your life because you're not paying attention. You're not watching God. He says, I am the Lord thy God, which teaches thee. But notice this. He teaches us to profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. Now, we understand the word profit. You go into business. You don't go into business to lose money. You go into business to make a profit. Amen? You buy a capital asset. Your goal is to buy is that asset to appreciate, and at a certain point, you're going to sell it so you can make a profit. A profit's a gain. A profit's an advantage. A profit leaves you better off. He says, I am the Lord thy God, which teaches thee to profit. What is he talking about? He's talking about helping us to realize that, that, that God gives joy in the morning, and God makes his face to shine upon us, and God wants to put his blessing upon us, and God is there for us, and God wants us to know that he can bear our burdens and carry us along the way. I'm the Lord thy God, which teaches thee profit. Hey, if you're somebody stuck right now, you feel like nothing's happening, you ought to claim verse 17 and verse 18 there. Say, God, I want you to be to God who could teach me to profit and show me the way which I should go. You're not sure what to do. You're not sure who to see. You're not sure what to do. He says, I'm the Lord thy God, which teaches thee to profit. How does he do that? He does that through his word. He does as we labor with him in prayer, as we listen to it under the preaching of God's word. He says, I'm the Lord thy God, which teaches thee the profit, which leadeth thee in the way that thou shouldest go. Well, if you're stuck in your career, you're stuck in a business, you're stuck in a relationship. You're stuck in ministry. You're stuck in your spiritual life. You need to claim verse 17. I'm the Lord thy God which teaches thee to profit and which leads thee in the way in which you should go. But he says something else. Notice verse 18. This leads right into verse 18. He said, I wish you'd listen to my commandments. I'm paraphrasing it. He said it this way. He said, oh, that thou hast hearkened to my commandments. I wish you'd obey my word. I wish, wish you'd listen to my word and obey it. Because he said, Then had thy peace been like a river. He said, If you obey me, you can have peace like a river. Now he's going to take him out of captivity, he's going to lead him out of Babylon back into Jerusalem. Regardless, because he said he would. I mean, God, what God says he will do, he will do it. Amen? Regardless of who we are. Because God had a divine purpose, big, much bigger than them. And he says that in chapter 46. 
And he describes something to them that the word peace is a recurring theme in the book of Isaiah. But he said, I'm going to give you peace like a river. A peace that is calming. A peace that is settling. A peace where there's no anxieties, no fears, no cares. A peace, peace like a river is a constant. There's no currents, undercurrents. There's no turbulence. There's no riptides. A peace like a river is a peace that lets you sleep at night. Peace like a river is rest in the soul. How many need us rest in the soul this morning, amen? Peace like a river is perfect peace because your mind is stayed upon the Lord. Peace like a river is great peace and nothing shall offend you. Peace like a river is peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace like a river is peace that only Jesus Christ can give, not as the world gives. Peace like a river is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Peace like a river is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Prince like a river is the God of peace, who the Bible says will bruise Satan on our feet shortly. He's the God of peace who, through the, who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, who makes us perfect, complete, to do all the will of God in our heart. Listen, he describes something they had not had for 70 years. And something that God wanted to have back again. He wanted them to have this peace like a river. The Bible says the man who meditates on the Word of God, he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Why a river? Because a river is continuous and a river has great nutrients and a river has calming effect and a river can saturate your soul. Oh, I'm thinking this morning, he's reminding them what Jesus would speak about later on in chapter 7 of John, verses 38 to 39. He says, he that believeth on me out of his belly, out of his soul, out of his life shall flow rivers of living water. Speaking about the Holy Spirit of God. God wants your life and my life to be like a peace, like a river where the working of the Holy Spirit produces produces the fruit of the Spirit, of the love, the joy, and the peace that God wants us to have. Peace like a river. Peace that only Jesus Christ can give your soul and mine. Now I want to say three things about the river this morning. Number one, peace like a river is peace with God. Peace like a river is peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace like a river, secondly, is peace purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Hey, listen, don't you ever preach a gospel that doesn't contain the blood. There's no peace that can reconcile without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it is peace you can possess today only through Jesus Christ as your Savior. Only through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. If you try to find in the world, you're going to find trouble. He said, be of good, world, good, good cheer. I have overcome the world. He said, in me you might have peace. Now, if you're trying to find peace and stimulants, Anxiety disorder medication, drugs and alcohol, being codependent on another relationship, material possessions, in the world you shall have tribulation. He said, in me ye shall have peace. Look at the last verse, verse 22. Apart from Jesus, there is no true peace. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Dr. Robert Oppenheimer was a great physicist 
and aided back in the early 40s in the development and the production of the atom bomb. Back in that day, everybody knew and were very scared about the lethal power of the atom bomb. Congress had a hearing. And Dr. Oppenheimer and other, other noted physicists appear before them. They drilled this man with a lot of questions about the atom bomb after its devastating impact when it was dropped in Japan. One senator asked this question. Dr. Oppenheimer, is there any defense, any defense against this power of destruction. The genius doctor and scientist looked up with a twinkle in his eye. He said two words. Certainly. Peace. Is there any hope for the destruction, the power of darkness, sin, discouragement, sorrow in this world? Yes, that power is peace through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. But for God this morning, who is reliable, He bears you up the moment you're conceived, all the way through your old age. But for God who's righteous, who works in the lives of the pagan and through the people of God, we have a God who gives rest. He gives a peace like a river. Can you trust Him today? Absolutely you can. Can you let Him bear you on His shoulders? You sure can. Can he give you that peace like a river? He sure can. He said, in me you shall have peace. Can he save you from your sin? He sure can. He can save you this morning from your sin. You'll let him bear you up. You'll repent of your sin and call upon him as your Savior. Tell him that you repent of your sin. Tell him that you know that today that only he can save you from your sins. Do you believe that he died for you and rose him from the dead? Peace, this peace like a river, is purchased through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This peace like a river gives us peace with God. If you're not saved, we invite you this morning to call upon the Lord to save you. If you're rustling and restless and in turmoil, would you claim and obey God to claim this peace like a river in your soul?